And uh, but I had a second spiritual experience at eight years of sobriety. I had I was a very active member of the, I have always been a very active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've always gone to four or five, six meetings a week. Always had a sponsor. Tried to do the steps. Sponsor people. Active in service. But my first six or seven years in AA, my life was horribly unmanageable. I had problems at work, with finance. I had a gambling problem, kind of a hobby. <laughs> four or five hours a day, four or five days a week. It wasn't a big one. And, uh, but I was making about $10,000 a year playing backhand. I was kind of a semi-professional backhand player. And, uh, and I had issues with marriage, with you know, we were arguing about how life was going, and I had issues with my children, as I said to you, that I was angry and sometimes violent, physical with my children. I had those problems throughout my entire first six or seven years of sobriety. I worked on them pretty hard. I, care, I want to be a good man, and it was frustrating as heck for me to keep doing these things as poorly as I continued to do them. And I'll tell you, at, eight, at seven or eight years of sobriety, I was uh, in trouble. I was thinking about suicide, you know, not a joke, not sort of, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I was tired. I was tired. <clears throat> it gets old. You know, I felt like <clears throat> I could write the book on what to do. I just couldn't do it. It gets frustrating <clears throat> knowing the answer. So, as I said earlier, I was stuck um, in, in that place where I thought I had to change before I could ask God's help. Because I thought God was, if I went to ask God's help, he'd say, change. I'd say, try that, I can't do it. You know, help me some other way. So I can't help you some other way. So I thought I'd have to do the change first. Um, and... Uh, so I did another four, I, out of desperation, I went back to step one and found out what one meant to me eight years over. I was powerless again. I was unmanageable. I rediscovered step two. I came to believe God was going to restore Bob, not you, not us, Bob, the sanity. I started to see people with bigger problems, with smiles on their faces, with great dignity, walking through walls that I was trying to avoid. And I came to believe God was going to restore Bob. I took the third step, on my knees with my sponsor in his office. We didn't do that much in those days. So, you know, that was different, but I thought, I'm going to do it, you know, the whole way. I did a fourth step, and I did my third, fifth step. In the previous two I had done with clergy, and this one I do with my sponsor. And I said, when you're done, be careful, because I'm going to do whatever the heck you tell. I said, I feel like I'm dying of thirst lying next to a lake. I said, I feel like there's a plastic shield between me and the water. <coughs> and um, when it was done, he uh, sent me to a psychologist. And I didn't want to go to a psychologist. I, but I had a lot of issues around money and failure and work and success. I had a very successful father, and I thought I'll never be as good as my father. So I had a lot of mixed up stuff. And I didn't want to go, but I said I'd do whatever he recommended I do, and I went to a psychologist. And the, the psychologist wanted to get my parents involved. I said, no, I won't do that. He wanted to get Linda involved. I thought, oh, crap. Uh, it just gets confusing and uh, maybe more honest than I wanted it to get to. 
when your wife's there, it's pretty hard to deny what's, what the unmanageability is. When you're going alone, you can manage it a little bit. And uh, what I need, I don't have enough time, and I'll get into it with my... Are we supposed to stop at 2.15 or something? Okay, give me that coffee. Uh, when I got into it with the psych- psychologist, is that uh, I made a discovery was how afraid I was. Now, at this point, I am uh, 32 years old. I'm married with two children. I'm in a psychologist's office with my wife and those two kids. I'm about to go bankrupt in a job. I don't know why I'm busting my ass an hour or two a day. And uh, and it's not working. And uh, I'm in as much debt at eight years of sobriety as I was when I came in the program. And I'm in trouble. And uh, I'm an active guy. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to do the deal. I'm just not. I just don't look too good. And uh, I got an. I made a discovery as how afraid I was. Now you'd think. Having done three inventories and three fear inventories, you know, a couple of fear inventories, but I, that was dogs in high buildings and snakes. <laughs> I had no insight into, and and this guy got me in touch with how afraid of failure I was. And I'll tell you something: if you can't fail, you can't play. You can't play. I was the guy that if we were going to run a marathon, I'd have a great pair of shoes and a great pair of shorts, and I'd look and talk and act like a runner. When the race took off, you'd think I was going to be in the top ten. I'd tell you that I won some race in Minnesota. And for the first third of the race, I'd be up in front. But then somewhere between a third and halfway through the race, I'd fall down and hurt myself, and I'd stop. When the race was over, someone would say, what happened to that guy from Minnesota? I'd say, oh, I don't know, he pulled a hamstring or something. Hell of a runner. God, he was up in the you know, won some race in Minnesota. But if you would have followed me around in a helicopter in my life the preceding 10 years, you could have guessed within 50 feet when I would have fallen down. Because I don't finish anything. I'm a great starter, but I don't finish anything. And I'll tell you something, that gets old. It gets old for your wife, it gets old for your parents, it gets old for you, and it, gets, it just gets old. They have a lot of talent and not be able to put it on the street and use it over an extended period of time, gets old. To not be able to use your gifts, gets old. And uh, I realized at the moment I was in that office that I was afraid of being a father. I was afraid of being a husband. I was afraid of the responsibility. I was afraid of success. I was afraid of failure. I was swimming in fear and didn't know what. I'd done three inventories and didn't know how afraid I was. And I went home to my, after I did that fourth and fifth, now I'm at the psychology, I went home and I had had a horrible day. And I realized that I had tried as hard as I knew how to try to change. And I failed. And for some reason, the thought occurred to me that was okay. Maybe that was where I was supposed to be, and I was allowed to take the sixth and the seventh step of the program of AA. The sixth step said, <clears throat> we're entirely ready to have God, not Bob, God, <laughs> remove our defects of character. And the seventh step said, we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. I had spent eight years trying to get rid of them. 
I don't have the power to get rid of them. It happens through me, not by me. I am the pipe, not the well. I am not the source. I'm the vehicle through which the power comes through. There's an, you know, a farmer doesn't grow. He plants a soil, creates a fertile environment, or creates a place where growth can take place, and God grows. A doctor doesn't heal. He creates an aseptic environment, creates an atmosphere in which healing can take place, and God heals. And we don't change. We create an atmosphere in which change can take place, and God changes us. When you're ready for change, it's like it falls off you. It just, it just goes away. Suddenly. It goes away. When you can see through it, when your consciousness gets raised in the process of doing these steps, you look at these things and they aren't treasures anymore. They're dog turds wrapped in gold tinfoil. They are not treasures anymore. You see through them and they just go away. And that's what, the, to me, the process of change. Pretend for a moment, this is, I do, I don't know what I'm going to do in my talk or what I'm going to do here, but I want you to know something about change. If I ask most of us to raise your hands, and I'm not asking you to raise your hands, and say, how many people would like to get rid of the things in their life that, don't, that doesn't work and that hurts people? Most of us would raise our hands. Well, I want to tell you something. That's not as true as you think it is. Okay? Pretend for a moment that I'm working with a 38, 40-year-old guy, married with children. And he's doing the fourth step, and he's having trouble with all the columns. And I say, Bill, don't worry about it. I said, that's complicated. Don't worry about it. Get your wife and your two kids and your mom and dad, your mother-in-law, your boss, a couple of guys from your AA group, and your brothers and sisters, and bring them over to the house. And here's what I want you to say. We have a step in AA, which helps us get in touch with our defects of character, and I'm having trouble identifying mine, and I'm wondering if you would help. <laughs> and then hand out tablets and, and leave. You'd have a pretty good start on an inventory, wouldn't you? Okay. But most of us would not call that meaning. Do you know why? We don't want to change. But it's worse than that, baby. Worse, we don't want to know. We train each other about what you can tell us and what you can't. If you're married, you train your wife. You can say, we're not talking about that. We're not having that. We are not having that conversation. You want to have that conversation? It's going to be a very expensive conversation for you to have. Not, not your head up and down if you understand. We are not having that conversation. Okay? Your children know what they can say and what they can't say. The people you work with know your bullshit and know what they can say and what they can't say. Okay? Your friends know what they can say and what they can't say. There's stuff that they know what's okay to talk about, what's on the table, and there's stuff that's not on the table. Okay? So we are not as open to change as we think we're open to change. When I was first in the program, I could try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and still grow. But there comes a time where you've got to change if you're going to grow. There comes a time when you get to a spot where you're at the fork in the road where it's time 
You don't need to inventory. You don't need any more information. You don't need to do any more step work. You need to change. And if you don't change, you then go out and build an addition onto your house to accommodate the problem. The chasers hang out with the chasers. The gamblers hang out with the gamblers, and they make a deal. I won't call you on your crap. You don't call me on mine. Deal? Bad deal. I got just the opposite deal with my friends. If I'm out of line, call me. Call me and tell me that if I've done something that really kind of stinky, call me and tell me. I want to, I really, that's the kind of deal I've got. I've got guys that if they knew, if they heard something, they'd be on the phone calling me. Checking it out. Okay? We are afraid. We so identify with some of our defects of character. We think they're who we are. They aren't who we are. They're just behavior. They're not skin and bones. It's just behavior. You can change your behavior without changing who you are. You can change your, your political party without changing who you are. You can change your car. You can change your behavior. It isn't who you be. It's what you do. So the reason that a lot of us do not have the results in the, in, the, in the process of change and growth that we want is we're afraid. We're afraid to stand in front of. You know, when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous and took step one, I stood naked in front of my alcoholism. And I never, it was never the same. I drank twice, but it was not with freedom. At eight years of sobriety, I stood naked in front of my life. I saw, I thought, you know, that in some ways I felt like a victim. I don't know how the hell I felt like a victim. And I saw that I had created all these problems that I thought I was a victim of. I designed my life the way it was. I protected my right to gamble. I protected my right to do AA activity when I should have been doing family activity. I protected my right to do all sorts of protect to spend money whenever the hell I wanted to spend money to do whatever I wanted to do. I didn't want that up for change. I wanted my business success to change, but I didn't want certain of my personal preferences to change. And it, it, it scared me that I, in order to change, I might have to put it all up on the counter. I didn't want to put it all. I wanted to pick and choose. And I think what I was afraid of is that life would be dull or no fun, or not what I wanted, or not enough, or I don't know what. But I'll tell you, when you get it going the way it's supposed to be going, there's no shortage. There's abundance. There's joy. <laughs> it is better than the other way has ever been. I've never had it all together, but my life substantially is more together today and more in balance today and more in peace today than it has ever been. And it's great. It is, you know, there just isn't... I'm in love with my wife. I mean, that's great. You know, it's not perfect, but it's great. You know, it is, it is, uh, that's a nice thing. It's a nice thing for our kids. It's, I mean, I have a good relationship with our children. But I'm, I want you to know how afraid of change I often am. And you often are. And sometimes we don't know that. We think in our heads, I'm ready to change. And you're dealing with the same monster that kept your alcoholism and drug dependency intact for a hell of a long time. You are more conflicted around change than you think you are. And sometimes you have to go back and examine that. And it takes a courage for us to confront. There's a great book. I usually don't recommend other books, but I'm good at 
do what I probably shouldn't do. There's a, a Buddhist nun by the name of Pima Chodron, and she, she has a uh, Buddhist monastery in Nova Scotia, and she wrote a book called Places That Scare You. And it's about being a spiritual warrior. And the idea of a spiritual warrior is a person who can stand in front of what they're afraid of. And I think that speaks to those of us who are in, a, in the program of AA and growing, that we regularly are asked to, if we're doing inventory and we're listening to the world and we're listening to our family, because if God wanted to get a message to you, how would he get it to you? Bad news, probably your spouse, maybe your parents, maybe your employer, maybe your kids, but he's going to use the people you're in relationship with. Okay? And most of us are afraid to listen to the message. It takes a courage to grow. It takes courage to change. It takes courage to stand naked in front of the unworkability of your life. But most of us know that, the, that what we're afraid of is an illusion. Most of us know that the way to spiritual growth is through the fire, not around it. The fire is an illusion. There is no pain in change. There's only pain and resistance to change. That's a quote from Clancy that I stole. But there is no pain in change. But we fear change. We fear loss of the known. So the engine of our program, four, five, six, and seven, and we'll get into eight and nine. Do you want to finish six and seven? Okay. Uh, it's two o'clock. You want to start eight and nine? Or? Yes? Uh, we're going to do a little on eight and nine. Then we're, you said 215, did you not? What? Okay. So we're going to go to 215 and 8 and 9, and then we're going to do questions and answers. Is that, is that okay? All right. Uh, step 8 and 9. I made a list of all people we had hired and became willing to make, make amends to them all. One of the other things that I talked about when we're doing step 4 and 5 that we need to remember is if you, if you focus too much on just the form, there's two things you want to get out of that. You want to get out of it a list of your defects of character so when you get to step six and seven, you know what you're asking. What you're asking for, what you're asking to get ready to have removed and you're asking for God to remove. It would be good that we have that list out of our fourth and fifth step experience and it may take a little bit more work. Also, it would be good to have an eight step list come out of our fourth and fifth step. So keep that in mind when you do, you know, most of us who have been around a little bit, but a lot of times we do that like we're not even thinking about what comes later. You know, we're not thinking about the list, and when we get to the eight-step list, we either have to go back, or if we don't have the four-step, we go back. So I like to try to, uh, you know, have some sort of sense that when I'm doing my fourth and fifth step, that when I'm done with it, that I'm going to have my six-step list and my eight-step list. Uh, in order for us to do an A-step list, made a list of the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, there has to be a change of heart. Because most of us come in here and we feel for whatever reason we've been a victim. Not everybody, but I did. I, and I don't even know why. I was loved, I was taken care of. But you feel like you're a victim of circumstance and bad luck or bad breaks and, you know, you hang on to the, you know, you, you need a way to explain why you haven't done much with your life. And you think, oh, if this would have happened, if I would have gotten that break, I would have been okay. You know, and we don't, want to, we don't want to take responsibility for our lives. It's just too harsh. It's too painful for us to stand up and say, I, 
I goofed it up. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't do it well. Uh, so the eighth and ninth step are, uh, to me, the get-out-of-jail-free cards. And sometimes I think that they are underutilized today in the program. I think that they are... Uh, they are the place that if you don't complete your eighth and ninth step, I think you are locking up a lot of energy that you need to live your life. Uh, if I were to uh, borrow uh, $3,000 from, uh, what's your name? <laughs> First mistake. Uh, okay, i got to say that again. I, yes. No, the first name, Vermin? I'm having trouble. Good one? Okay, I'm having trouble. I'm sorry. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to Siki. Excuse me. I'm, I'm, I don't have a good ear for language. If, if I were to borrow $5,000 from Siki, Okay. and assume that he was a pretty well-off guy and had a fair amount of money and he can lend me the money. And I tell him, I need $5,000. Uh, I'll give it back to you. I'm, my tax return is coming back in three months. So let's say he lends me the money. Okay? Big mistake. <laughs> he lends me the money, and then I don't pay him back. All right? Well, the first thing I've got to do is, is as soon as I... As soon as it comes time for me to pay him back, I start, I start missing meetings because I don't want to be in the meetings where he is. Okay? Then I've got to kill him because he bothers me. <laughs> so I go around and say, ah, oh, you know, he's kind of a jerk. He's got a lot of money. He doesn't need the money. I mean, I, I start saying negative things about him so that I somehow neutralize him so, he, so it doesn't bother me in my mind. Then I stop going to the group. So I lose my AA meeting. Okay? And let's say two years pass, but every time his name comes around on the carousel of my mind, you can just see my lights dim. Okay? My battery just drains. Well, alcoholics don't have one of those. Okay? We've got 20 of those. Okay? Little black holes. Little black holes that suck our soul. To suck energy, to suck light out of our spirit. And those incompletions drain us. And I think if you wonder why sometimes people who have a lot of talents but are unable to do much with their talents, there are a lot of people in AA like that. I think many times it's because they have not completed steps eight and nine. They're afraid of it. They don't think they have enough money. They don't, you know, whatever the explanation is. They haven't gotten to the point where they're responsible enough to own up to what they have done. And that, that takes, you know, what happens when you can own it, you can change it. You can take responsibility for it. Your integrity gets restored. Your wholeness gets restored. And when you start, when you, when you, when I give him back, and maybe it's not giving them back the whole $5,000. Maybe it's going back to him and saying, I was wrong, I'm sorry, here's $500, and I will give you $50 a week for the next three years, or whatever, however. Okay? I haven't even totally paid him back. 
But the moment that I made the list and knew that I was willing to go through that process, I started to be free immediately. Not when it was done. I knew men that took eight or ten years. We used to have parties for people who paid their bills. You know, I mean, you know, we'd go out and celebrate. We'd go out and have coffee and ice cream after the meeting because I remember Mark, you know, it was about it was about eight or nine years for him to pay off his amends. I remember I was newly sober and I thought, holy cow, it took him eight or nine years. I thought, that's a lifetime. I'm 24 years old. And I thought, you know, but what, what dignity, what dignity there is for the persistence of that man to keep taking the amount of money and doing that over that period of time. I don't know what his list was or how much money it was, but I know that I can still remember the day and still remember the celebration that we had. And I can remember when I got my amends paid off the first time. It was a very big deal. When you do that, the energy that was being sucked into those little holes, there's energy in completions. When you complete something, there's, you know, when you go clean the garage, when you clean your closet, you create an energy. It's the same thing in your life. When you clean up an area of your life, it's like there's a, something gets created in that process, and that energy becomes available for you now to live your life. Before, it's amazing that we had the energy to get dressed. We had all these little black holes that were holding us down and going back. So I really think that the eighth and ninth step, it is the, uh, it is the prima facie evidence that you have had the change of heart necessary to undertake the work of the program. You've admitted your powerlessness. You've turned your will and your life over to the care of God. You've inventoried what's wrong. You've shared it with another person. And now you're going to make the wrongs right. And when you've done that, your work is done. Now you just continue. Now you go through the maintenance steps. Now you just keep going forward. But the bulk of your work is done. The promises follow in the book, you know, the, the main promises that we talk about in the book follow steps eight and nine. But I think today there's an overemphasis on four and five and an underemphasis in eight and nine. Because we're more intellectual. We want more information. And I think we have more information than we're willing to admit. And the core and, and also today I would like to say that I think sometimes we are too psychological. You know, that that the that that, you know, we, the list of eight and nine get too long. We go back to high school and remember every, you know, little thing that someone did to us or, you know, or we did to someone else. And you can get a little neurotic going through this list. And I think a little common sense is good. And, uh, but I think there's a power, uh, the power of completion and the restoration of your integrity. And when you restore someone, I have watched uh, a half a dozen guys that I sponsor go through this process, and when they've completed it, they're different men. They're just they're different men. They're they're, and people treat them differently. I know people who, before, prior to this process, that uh, people used to give a bad time to all the time. And when they went through this process, they were no longer people you could give a bad time to. They just were bigger people than they were before. And, and because something got restored, something got returned to them in that process, and invariably they were able to go on and do better things with their lives 
than they had been able to do up till then. So there's some very good stuff. Well, in Al-Anon, you know, we do the same thing. We have hurt people either by committing some crime or act against them, or by, because of our anger, self-pity, isolation, we've withdrawn from people for no reason at all, and these people don't know what's happened. Um, so we have to take a look at, from our list, I mean, from our fourth and fifth step, the people that we have harmed by our behavior. I think it's real important to remember that eight and nine come at position eight and nine. I didn't pay attention to that the first time because, as I said, I wasn't going to do four and five, and there were a couple of other ones I wasn't going to do either. And um, But I thought maybe I could do eight and nine. So I sort of jumped into eight and nine because I wanted to do something. And the good news was I didn't do any harm to anybody, but I could have. I really could have. I think eight and nine come in that position exactly the right place because then you're supposed to have steps one through seven under your belt completed. And also you will have at that point hopefully a sponsor, someone that you would check out. Um, I think we need to make the list, but I think we need to check that list with our sponsor. You know, where it says to make amends wherever possible or whenever possible. That's something that I think needs to be discussed because you don't want to create more pain by making your amends. If I've gossiped about you, it is not appropriate for me to come up to you, in my opinion, and say, I've been gossiping about you for eight years, but I'm really sorry about it. You know, um, but my job in that situation is not to tell you. My job in that situation is not to gossip. It's to change my behavior and then maybe do some kindnesses for you for the reason that I have harmed you, but not to open a wound that you don't even know you have. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's some real importance in the positioning of these steps and also in um, checking them out with your sponsor because I don't, think, I don't think I had the wisdom that my sponsor had and she was able to help me do some sorting. So anyway, I, I got to eight and nine and I, I had a list and I made amends to those people. And then we're a step group in our, in our group, so every week we do a different step. So every 13 weeks we come around to 8 and 9 again. And every time I would get to 8 and 9, I would just say the prayer that if there's somebody who I have not cleaned up, please let that prayer become... Three or four you know, I sort of get on a roll and then laugh. Um, behave. <laughs> so I say that prayer. And probably around 10 years into my program, and I don't know the timing and it's not important, this woman that I worked with, started. her name was Helen, and she started to come up, sort of like bubbling up. And I would say, no, no, there's no reason I didn't do anything to harm that woman, but it wouldn't go away. And finally I realized after praying about it and talking it over that I needed to make amends to this woman. This is a woman that I worked with when I taught in a college situation. And she was um, probably about 12, 10, 12 years older than I was. And she was the head of the department, and I worked underneath her. So I would pick up the slack when she wouldn't teach. I would teach. But she was having some gum surgery. And 
she wasn't teaching as much as she could, so I was taking over. But rather than just taking over, I was puffing myself up and making myself look more important. And by doing that, I was putting Helen down. And I knew that it was dirty and ugly and I didn't like myself for it, but she really didn't know about it. Then I started to look at things and I realized in some ways I think she did know about it. But, you know, should I really call her? I mean, do I want to open up an old wound? Do I want to open up a wound anyway? Well, finally it became clear that I needed to. And one day I was reading the Sunday paper and they had an article on how to do something crazy with geraniums. And Helen did the same thing with geraniums. And I thought, all right, I'm going to call her. So I, I knew exactly where she lived. I knew her last name. Looked it up. Maybe, maybe it won't be there. Maybe she'll have an unlisted number. Well, she had a listed number. So I called her up, and I said, you know, told her who I was, and we chatted for a little bit, and then sort of reconnected. And, and I said, you know, Helen, I have something I have to tell you. And so those times when you were having the gum surgery, I was, I was catty, and I, I, I was making myself better at your expense. And I felt, I feel really badly about this, and I want you to know that I was wrong. And it's something that I'm not proud of, and I'm really sorry for the pain that I did cause you. And she said, she, oh, she also had known that we were in AA and Al-Anon at the time, and she knew that Bob did speaking. And she said to me, are you doing a ninth step? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I was. <laughs> She said, well, she said, first of all, I accept what you said. She said, but I want you to know that I wasn't having gum surgery. I was taking all those mints because I was drinking about a quart of vodka a day. And I am now sober in AA. And I understand what you're doing, and I totally accept that. And I'm really grateful that you called. And so we talked for maybe another 30 minutes or something, and it didn't have to go that way. It, it could have, she could have gotten angry with me and hung up, and I would have been okay. But you never know, do you? And I am so grateful that she kept coming up on my carousel, because if I hadn't paid attention to that, I never would have had that wonderful experience. And I was retelling my, my people in my group, say, tell us the Helen story. <laughs> Sometimes if someone hasn't signed up for step nine, and so they'll look at me and they'll say, oh, tell us the Helen story. I told it about maybe three, five months ago, and I can't remember her last name anymore. And I thought, you know why I can't remember her last name? Because I don't have to know her last name anymore. She lived in Bayport. She probably still lives there. But I don't have to know her last name because I am clean with Helen. So every time we come around to step eight and nine, I say that same prayer. And I've had one other thing pop up, and I've taken care of it, too. I hope nothing else pops up, but I'm going to keep, yeah, we're going to talk afterward. I think I'm going to be busy for a while. <laughs> um, but I'm going to keep saying that prayer because I want to, I want to stay clean. I want, I want to have my energy for my life. And I agree so much with Bob that these holes, whether it be clutter in our house, which we're also talking about, trying to, you know, eliminate these areas that we have sort of, we have piles that grow up around us in our home and we're, we're trying to really work on that. Or whether it's people, relationships, we need the energy to live our lives. Our lives are important. This is not a dress rehearsal. And I want to have all the energy I can have to be present to the day and eight and nine what you say, the let's out of jail cards? Or they, they give us freedom. 
And we need that for our lives. Okay. Hi, I'm Linda. I'm a grateful member of Alanon. Okay, we're on step ten. Um, I told you earlier that when I first came to the program, there were steps that I liked and steps that I didn't like. And step 10 was one of the steps that I liked. It was a chosen step. Um, For lots of the wrong reasons, but it was still a step that I liked. I found it very easy to say I was sorry. And um, I used that term to smooth things over for years. It was just the pat word, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. It was a word that kept, it was a phrase that kept peace. It was a phrase that sort of got me off the hook. It was a phrase that I thought made you feel better. I overused it. Um, I remember hearing one time an Alan on speak, and she said she felt that she was indirectly responsible for World War II. And, and for that, she was very sorry. And I really, really related to that, because I, I used it to all the wrong reasons. So when I got to step 10, I thought I could do it. And I also liked it because I thought I could do it better than Bob could do it. It was one of the steps that I thought I had, um, I was a little bit ahead of him on. Um, my second sponsor, I had two sponsors for a period of about seven years, and um, I chose a second sponsor because my first sponsor quit going to meetings, and one of my rules is that I need to have a sponsor who attends meetings regularly, has a sponsor, and works the steps. And so my rules sort of got jarred a little. So I had this second sponsor, and one day she and I were talking about step 10, and I was telling her how well I did it and how easy it was for me. And she said, Linda, you know, I don't see anywhere in there that it says you're sorry. It it just says, when you were wrong, promptly admitted it. So she said, from now on, when you are making amends and you are doing step 10, I want you to use the words, I was wrong. Well, let me tell you. The difference between I'm sorry, which could just roll off my tongue, to I am wrong, was profound. It was like somebody hit me and took all the wind out of me. It was so difficult to do. And... We also talked about, you know, taking responsibility and saying you're wrong when you're wrong, not just to smooth things over. And we talked about the whole thing. But anyway, um, that was a, a, a real big difference for me. And now when I do say that, make amends to people, I try not to say I'm sorry or I try to say it in conjunction with, but I always say I was wrong. I wish I hadn't done it that way. Or I was wrong when I did that. I'm sorry about that. But thanks to Marcy, I... I cannot do that step without saying I'm wrong. There's now become a new phase of it for me, and the new phase is I was the kind of person who, when you were wrong, especially when Bob or the kids were wrong, which of course wasn't very often, (laughs) but when that, the slight chance that that would occur, I was the kind of person who would rub it in 
and make it very, very clear to them that not only were they wrong, but that they had inconvenienced me. And I started to grow up just recently on that one and realize that once it's happened, and I'll tell you, I still, it is not that the inclination or the desire has gone away. It has not gone away at all. I still would love to rub your nose in it when I get a chance, but I try very hard. That is a new part of my program that I'm trying very, very hard not to do. So when you've done something wrong, I've had to do something different because of it. My new plan of attack is not to tell you. To allow myself to be the person who handles it. To take the responsibility and not, in other words, sort of like not spank you. You know, you spilt the milk. You know, And um, it's very difficult, but I like it a whole lot. Now I'm going to turn it over to Bob. You're wrong so often, you would think you would be more used to it by now. <coughs> Continue to take personal inventory once you're wrong promptly admitted it. Most of us have a sense in the fifth step of um, having really cleaned house, you know, that we, we really have emptied ourselves out. And uh, this is a way to not fill ourselves back up, you know. Most of us, if we aren't careful, we just keep throwing rocks in our knapsack and uh, can find ourselves weighted down again if we aren't careful. And uh, this is a very appropriate tool for not burdening ourselves as we go about our business and recovery. Uh, and again, I want to say let's not be neurotic about these things, you know, take real events and, and, uh, and go deal with them. I think people who are on a spiritual walk and are looking for growth and looking for the full measure of recovery, uh, continuing to take an inventory, continuing to examine, continuing to question ourselves in a healthy, not non-neurotic way, uh, is one of the greatest tools we have. Uh, not having to be right. I'll tell you, there is nothing sweeter than, you know, it's like heroin being right, you know. I mean, it, it is... Uh, uh, for a lot of people, that's what life's about, looking good and being right. And uh, if you aren't careful, there's those, you know, those are the booby prizes. What you get if you're right is you don't get relationship. You know, a lot of times you want to maintain relationship, being right is something that you have to subjugate, put in second position to go do that. So, I, again, it's an attitude that I think we look to ourselves and we question um, both our motives and our behavior, uh, uh, and I think it's an attitude that, that will stand us in good stead. And it's something that will guarantee or at least uh, allow us to have an opportunity that we don't reburden ourselves. The 11th step says, Soft prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood and praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, Our book, uh, I believe that as we become more recovered, 
we become closer to our God. I believe that the process of finding God is a process of coming home. I believe that much of the angst that we have in life is being separated from God in the first place. And that, you know, kind of the, you have great mythology in Iceland. You know, some of the Bible, you know, and I don't mean to offend anybody, is also considered by some to be mythology when we talk about the Adam and Eve event, an original sin. And uh, some people think that the original sin is just the, the, the whole concept of being separated from God. And that our mythic journey is to come back to God, is to rejoin ourselves, to find our whole, to restore our integrity. And that most of us in that process are experiencing the pain of separation, the sense of loneliness, the sense of difference, you know, that our ego, uh, you know, only two choices. You either have your ego and intellect running the show or you have... You're God-centered. Okay? When your ego and intellect are running the show, you're different, you're separate, you know, and you're in opposition to everything around you. And, you know, and all of us in life are trying to reduce pain and go towards pleasure. Okay? It doesn't work. But, I mean, that is our program. If you took most human beings, what we're trying to do is avoid pain and move towards pleasure. Okay? Now we get into the Western way of thinking, and, you know, most of us are looking for our redemption. Most of us are looking for our solution, most of, you know, in things, you know, in a person. You know, if I get the right person, if I get the right house, if I get the right car, if I wear the right clothes, if I have the right body, if I have, you know, there's always something, you know, we're looking for what's next. What do you want? I want just a little bit more. You know, we are people that go to an all-you-can-eat place for $5, and we want $10 worth. I mean, there is, I mean, enough is only a concept. We have never experienced enough. Yeah. Enough does not exist for us. And I don't know, there's so many things, uh, you know, I just kind of want step 11 and 12 maybe to be kind of a wrap-up for us. But, but in a sense... We are people who, I believe, that have started out perfectly intact and whole. Nothing missing. Complete. But what was complete and whole was like this perfect magnet. And we have dragged this magnet through the junkyard of life. It's a very powerful magnet. And when we showed up in AA, it was this big, with pieces of metal and pieces of junk that we have accumulated in the process of living our lives. That we built layer after layer after layer of protection. That we built a machine for our protection from pain. For our protection from looking at things that we didn't want to see. And that the process of finding God and the process of finding peace and the process of finding joy is one of removal, not of addition that we take away the barriers that are between us and our experience of a higher power. That, you know, by action, by action in AA, we take off a piece of metal off that big ball, and someday we will see a, a shine of light come through from that perfect place. That underneath it all, we are whole and intact with nothing missing. 
that our spiritual journey is one of coming home to wholeness, not repairing. And these are just words, because in some ways we do repair, and in some ways we do improve, and in some ways we do change. But the fact is, after 36 years of my being in AA, I'm the same guy. <laughs> I'm old and gray and fat, but I'm the same guy. I mean, inside, I'm still 32, 33. I don't know what the number is, but it's, it's in the 30s. And uh, uh, so your spirit doesn't age. You know, your outside ages, you know, but your spirit doesn't age. And most of us have been so used to looking at each other like we're our Chevrolet. You know, so when we want to do something to feel better, we go get the Chevrolet painted. We put new wheels on it, we get it painted, we get it polished, and we forget we're not the Chevrolet, we're the driver. And all the drivers are the same. When they step out of the Chevrolet, all the drivers are the same, they're just spirits. They're not different, they're the same. And I think that every once in a while we get a sense of that. Every once in a while we get touched in a way when we come in the program that we know the answer has something to do with a power greater than ourselves. That we know that the answer doesn't have to do with the new watch or the new coat or the new house or the new boyfriend or the new girlfriend or the new something, you know. Even though we may be attracted to that, that somehow we've done enough of that. I'm 60 years old. I just turned 60 a couple of months ago. <laughs> Cannot believe that number. That number just doesn't seem real to me. Uh, and I'm sort of retired. I'm sort of, my son is now working with my partner. My partner's older. My partner has 40 years of sobriety. And we've been partners for 32 years. 34 years. Wow. 34 years. And he grew up two blocks away from me. And his younger brother was my best friend. His younger brother has 23 years of sobriety. My partner called on all three of our children to bring them in the program. When all three of our kids' pants got on fire, they went to talk to Terry. You know, so we are—we have always been connected. We've been connected in faith, and we've been connected in the program. And he was the first fellow I knew in recovery, and it has been a—it has been a big deal. So. Uh, the bad news is, is that we have a disease that if you don't deal with it, it's going to kill us. And it's going to ruin the lives of four to ten people around us. The good news is that in order to get well from it, you have to learn how to live. You have to force yourself to learn how to live. You have to force yourself, because of your illness, to put spiritual principles in action in your life. Now, as a result of putting spiritual principles in action in your life, you will have a be most of us will have a better life than we would have had had we never had the disease. Because we will be forced to do things that are good for us that we would not have the discipline to do if we didn't have the motivation of having a disease that would kill us if we didn't take the action. Now, most of us have a very old idea of God. Most of us have personified God. We have an idea of God as a person. But we don't have, but, but by the time we have gone through this program, one of the great things that we have now is we start to have an experience of God. Not an idea of God. Not a belief of God. We actually have a number of ways that we can know God. 
not about God, that we can know God. So someone says, who is God? That's a head question. Everybody in this room has had some experiences where we know God, not about God, not who God is. We know God. Okay? And that is the process of connection. That is the process of wholeness. That is the process of, of being centered. Okay? Now, when we increase our, praying only for the knowledge, you know, looking to increase our conscious contact with God as we understand Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. I believe that we have to do some spiritual reading in alcohol. I have been a member of a men's group for the last 17 years, and there are a dozen men in that group, and, and all but three of us are recovered alcoholics, but, but it's not an AA group, and it's a group for spiritual growth. It's a group called we call Quest. We're in the spiritual quest. And we take different books, and, and most of us have been sober 20-plus years. You know, so we're not grabbing newcomers. You know, we're not grabbing people that, you know, three weeks of sobriety and putting them in this group uh, because I don't think you, we should do that. You know, we're, we're looking, you know, but I think once you've got a few years of sobriety, I think picking up books like Sermon on the Mount and picking up books that have been historically, you know, important in Alcoholics Anonymous and picking up A Road Less Traveled or that book I told you about, you know, Places That Scare You, Broadening your, you know, because all of us get stuck from time to time. When you're stuck, do something that you've never done before. Go to a group that you've never attended before. Read, talk to someone and get, and get advice on a book that might help you in your spirit. If your attitude's good, those books aren't going to hurt you, and they're going to they're going to stimulate you to do something. And I think that many of us don't have enough stimulation. If you don't think you're being programmed. The average person watches, in our, our country, I don't know what it is anymore, it's like four and a half hours of television. You watch four and a half hours of television, you get 15,000 commercials a year. I think uh, that may be a month. It, it is just astounding. Okay? Now, the message in that is you're not okay. Your body's not okay. Your bank account's not okay. Your house is not okay. You're not okay until you have this product. Subtly, our whole system of consumerism is to subtly make us unhappy, insecure, and not okay with ourselves. So if you wonder sometimes why you're a little flat, <laughs> I mean, that message is everywhere. And the message is you shouldn't have to suffer. Poor baby, you're having a tough time? Take a pill. I mean, or... No, but, you, but, but the idea is... If, if you're suffering, something's wrong. Well, the fact is, is life is sometimes hard. That's not pessimistic. It's just a fact. You're going to have your turn in the barrel. You can't be sober for 30 years without having a turn in the barrel. You can't be married for a long period of time without having t really tough patches. That's what life is. You know, and you survive them. You get through them. Sometimes you just hang on. And, and, and endure a period of time. You don't look very smart and you don't look very good during some of those times, but that's just life. And if you've got a good sponsor, every once in a while they'll tell you, just hang on, kid. <laughs> this is a really tough patch. 
you're a good kid. You've done a great job. Just hang on. I can remember my sponsor has told me that a couple of times. I'm sorry you're having a tough time. You know, he doesn't always say, you know, well, you're having a tough time because you did this wrong and that wrong. And Sometimes he would tell me that. But sometimes I'm just, the circumstances are tough. You've got a sick kid and, you you know, all of a sudden that deal you thought was going to go through at work doesn't go through. There are tough times. But if you're not doing something to maintain your spiritual condition, and in three or four places in the big book, the book talks about maintaining and enlarging our spiritual condition. And they talk about Jim, the guy who drank the scotch, the car salesman. And he said he drank because he failed to enlarge his spiritual condition. One of the great questions I asked myself with about eight years of sobriety around the time I had that spiritual renaissance was, you know, the ABC. You know, A, that we were alcoholic and couldn't manage our own lives. B, probably no human power could have believed our alcoholism. But C, God could and would if he were sought. I asked myself, Bob, how much time have you spent seeking God? Now, I don't want an answer for that, but that's a powerful question. I think going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous is seeking God. But I think that can also be a rationalization. I think once in a while we should do something specifically that is seeking God. I don't know exactly what that is. I don't know if that's going to church. I don't know if that's reading a book. I don't know if that's talking to a minister. I don't know if that's having a conversation on spirituality with your sponsor. But if you're going to maintain and enlarge your spiritual condition, asking yourself from time to time what you're doing to maintain and enlarge your spiritual condition to improve your conscious contact. Because when you're going to change, when you're going to improve, the very first thing you have to do is to tell the truth about something. You have to label it. You have to name it. So I tell you, when I named my alcoholism, it made an enormous difference in my life. But most of us named it. Most of us admitted we were alcoholic. Things changed. The next thing you do is you raise it in your consciousness. It's no longer out in the garage. It is in front of you. What you can see and be with, you can manage. What you can't see and can't be with manages you. When I could not be with my alcoholism, it managed me. Once I could admit my alcoholism and raise it in my consciousness, and it was in my conscious attention, I could start to deal with and manage my recovery with help. Then I direct my will, like I do in the third step, towards that goal that I have of not drinking, towards the goal that I have of increasing my spiritual contact, my growth. Now, when you do those three things, you have, you have put in place the beginning steps of change and improvement. So you name it. You tell the truth. You know, I want to increase my conscious contact with the God of my understanding. You raise it in your consciousness. You put it up above the table so it's not under the table, out of sight. And then you direct your attention and intention towards it which is what we do in all the things that we do in the program. So it's kind of directing your will towards that. And when you do that, you start to then have that, when it talks in the book, it was on page 92 and 93, about that, that second sense, about having, being that contact with God, that we have, start to have ways of knowing, that, intu, that intuitive sort of thing, not just the mind sort of thing, that we start to have a sense of knowing that's beyond the mind. And when you do that, what most of us are looking for, you know, if, if you look at someone and say, what do you want? 
They said, I want to be happy. I like a distinction that a man, a well-known author today, said just recently, the author of the book that we're talking about. And he said, happiness is dependent upon your perception that the circumstances in your life are positive. But joy and peace are not contingent upon your perception that the circumstances in your life are positive. You can have joy and peace regardless of the circumstances in your life. You can have joy and peace regardless of any other person in your life. That is available to you at all times. Those are not contingent upon circumstances. Happiness is often the way we, the way we use the word happiness often is. So without knowing it, a lot of us don't pay much attention to our spiritual condition and our spiritual practice. In order to maintain our recovery, you need a practice. You need a practice of meetings. You need a practice of sponsor. You need a practice of sponsees. You need a practice of reading the book. But you need a practice of increasing your conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Meditation is one of the most profound ways that, one, that we can maintain our spiritual condition. Uh, it often is difficult with those of us who have very busy minds. Uh, I have uh, had an on-again and off-again relationship with meditation for 30 years. Um, I've had periods where I do it well, and I've had periods where I have not done it, and I've had periods where I don't do it well. But for the last three years, I have had a, a very steady, uh, especially maybe the last five years, I've had a very steady practice of meditation. I think more of us would meditate if we had less, if we had a little bit more information about the process. And when, when I'm talking about meditation, I'm talking about sitting in a chair much like that. I have cushions and I have a special room that I sometimes do it in, but most of the time I'm just seated in a chair with a straight back, with my feet flat on the floor, with my spine straight up and down, with my hands on the, on the top of my thighs. I close my eyes. Some people do not close their eyes. I, and the thing that I hold my attention on is my breath. I watch, I, I pay attention to my out-breath. Now there are literally hundreds of books on meditation and how to meditate. There are tapes about how to do this. It is not complicated. A lot of friends of mine have gone to TM, have paid someone to instruct them. I think that that's great. I think it's fine. There are, there are practices of meditation that use mantras. But I'm telling you that the very first thing you will find out when you try to meditate is how busy your mind is. Because most of us feel the process of meditation is to quiet your mind. I'll tell you, baby, that is like a gerbil track. There is something going through that. It is like a grand central station. There are trains going through that in every different direction, every second of the day. Uh, it is... Uh, and I think we're under the illusion that we can control our thinking. We're under the illusion that we think. And I think that it controls us. Okay? Because if you control it, turn it off. And if any of you have tried to meditate, you can't turn it off. Okay? But what you can do is detach yourself from it. As a friend of mine said, it's like meditating in a river. You sink to the bottom 
you grab a hold of the weeds and you let the boats go by. You do not have to get on every train that goes through the station. You cannot, they are like clouds in the sky. Let them go by. You do not have to interact with them. But what most of us do, every once in a while, one's got Velcro on it and it grabs us and we're, you know, off in that thought. Okay. But what meditation allows me to do, rather than just quiet my mind, which my mind has become more quiet over the period of time, is I'm actually able to see how noisy my mind is. I'm actually able to see my mind and be somewhat detached from my mind. I, I can't tell you that I was a guy, when I thought it, I did it. Okay? It was printed on my eyeball. There was, that was my reality. The thought came out, it was my reality. It never occurred to me that it wasn't accurate, that I might be seeing it wrong. I just thought it was my gift from the universe that was, I had to go with it. Okay? Well, when every idea you have is printed on your eyeball and that's your reality, there is no choice. But now what happens to me is I get, the thought comes and it's out here. I get to look at it and I get to say, holy cow, I haven't had, I haven't been that nuts in quite a while. Okay? But I used to get a thought reaction, thought reaction, thought reaction. I was a monkey on a string. You put a quarter in me and push B5, I played B5. Okay? But now when you put a quarter in me and you push B5, I get to choose whether I'm going to play B5. That's like being let out of jail. I have a gap between the thought and my action. And in that gap, I am a human being. I don't think I had that gap for the first 15 years of my recovery. I have felt most of my life like I am holding back a team of about six horses and not all that successfully. It just, you know, that's just the way it was. And today, I feel like it's down to three. And I'd like it to get down where I don't feel like I'm holding anything back, but I still do feel like I'm holding back three horses. And... uh it isn't perfect today. It's just quieter today. It's more peaceful today. I must, I must be deviled today. Meditation is one of the biggest pieces of that. If I, you know, if I could encourage any of you to start the practice of meditation, I think you will be greatly benefited as our program supports and reflects. Do you have anything you want to talk about now? I got you. In the eleventh step, you want me to go into step twelve? Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So what is the process? We've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the work we've done on the preceding steps. And I'll tell you, I've said those words hundreds of times over the last number of years, and it's only been the last ten years where I really paid attention to the fact that it's telling me that I'm more awake. So if you want to know how the growth happens in the program, I believe it does it by waking us up. I believe that when I struck my children, I did it when I was asleep. I'm responsible, but please don't hear that I don't, that I don't, that I'm not responsible. I was responsible for it. But I believe I was walking in my sleep. I was, when you wake up, you don't do things like that. 
You know, Chuck Chamberlain, one of the great men of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, who's, who's been dead quite a number of years on the West Coast, I remember him looking at me one time and he said, the man on the street committing great crimes right now is doing the best he knows according to his own light. When he has more light, he will do better. So what we do in AA is as we get more light, as, as we become more conscious, as we become more aware. Now, all of us know people that are just like they're unconscious. They just, they walk in a room and they just, it's like there's no, I tell the guys I sponsor, you see those shadows out there? Those are people. <laughs> I mean, it's like there's no one else there. Okay? And, and, and that's how self-centered many of us are, you know. I don't have much time. Well, just just talk about me. You know I me. Mean? We just I mean it is we are just obsessed with ourselves. We cannot literally and, and everybody else is just a player in our drama. We only see other people as they are reflected and related to us. As we take these steps, as we do this work, as we inventory, as we become more honest, as you know, as the picture, as our picture of reality becomes more realistic, we become more awake. When you become more awake, you then start to have a choice about what you do and what you put in your life. When you're completely asleep, there is no choice. It does it to you. You're a monkey on a string. That's just all there is. When you surrender, what you have done is you have now subordinated your ego. If it's a true surrender, your ego collapses. It's not there. It's not home. When your ego collapses, you are as teachable as you have ever been in your life. You are like an open slate. People can write on it. It's just you're, you're a clearing for learning. It is one of the we talk about that like the honeymoon in AA. It is one of the best periods of it's like that early process of falling in love. Your ego just collapses and you just you just melt into each other. That now that's erotic. It does not last. It is just for the propagation of humanity. You know, reality returns in a relatively short period of time, as it does with our collapse of our ego in AA. Okay, but if we have a program, and if we have a practice, there's enough humility in the way we practice that your ego can stay as a junior partner. You're never going to get rid of your ego. That's your space suit. You've got to have your space suit to take the trip. You can't take the tri trip without your space suit. But it can be your junior partner, your God-centeredness, and your intuition, not your intellect, your intuition can be the guiding forces of your life and that connection to your higher power. So having had a spiritual awakening, so as a result of taking the steps, we are now more awake and more conscious. As a result of being more awake and more conscious, we live our lives in an elevated way compared to how we lived our lives before. And for those of us that have been sober 10 or 15 years, we know that we're more aware than we were when we were three years sober. And that every year... Maybe not every year, but over a period of time, incrementally, we gain, if we're doing some work, incrementally we gain awareness. That's a spiritual awakening. It is very cool. It is very profound. 
It is the source of everything that you do. That's how you change. You don't change by resistance. You change by waking up. You wake up by doing the work. And the work is described in our book. And the work is, and we are in a community of people who support us doing the work. Sometimes we aren't very nice to each other, but almost always we want each other to do well in our recovery. I think that that is an extraordinary thing to have available to each other, that we are in a village, that we're in a community, that we're in a community where we want each other to do well in our recovery. Almost never do you ever hear anybody say, I hope that person gets drunk. Once in a while you might hear that, but most of us don't feel that way. We don't want that. We might even be mad at someone, but we would never want that. We want, we want good for each other. That's a wonderful thing to have available to us. And that we have that in our meetings and in our community. And it's a treasure. So having had a spiritual awakening, we resolve these steps. We practice these principles and we try to carry the message of other alcoholics. Uh, it is, uh, the opportunity to carry the message to other alcoholics is one of the greatest opportunities that we have. Uh, sponsorship and, uh, doing 12-step work is as good as it gets. One of the reasons that my program, such as it is, has been in places that I sponsor people and, and when you sponsor people, they keep you honest. In order to tell them to read the book, you have to read the book. In order to tell them to go to meetings, you have to go to meetings. In order to tell them how they should treat their children, you have to treat your children better. So what happens to you is that in a, in a phony way, you start improving so that you can tell the people you're working with to do the correct thing because you don't want to tell them to do what you've been doing. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's the way it has always worked. It, it, is, just, it is just the best. It is... It is and, and, and almost always you get in conversations to help people. You get people that come to you that you have conversations with them that you need to have with yourself. Okay? And one of the great wonders is, is that you're on a 12-step call or you're working with a sponsee, and all of a sudden something comes through your mouth that is pretty profound, absolutely right on, and you never knew it until the moment you said it. And you, it came through you, not from you. And you get to have that experience, and you just—it <laughs> is—you just go, wow, you know, very cool. And it is very cool because at that moment you weren't there. At that moment, the universe came through you. At that moment, God went right through you to the other person that you were there, and you weren't. The best times of your life, you're not there. And that stops the moment you are aware of what happened. That moment closes and becomes a concept. Our tradition of carrying our message to the practicing alcoholic, our tradition of sharing our experience, strength, and hope, and not our ideology, not our psychology, not our thinking, but our experience, is the bedrock of our fellowship. I don't know of a place that we could go that you could find the combination of spirituality and practicality and accessibility. There are places that have spirituality 
But they, it's not as accessible to me as it is in AA. You can almost touch it in AA. You, on a regular basis, get to see miracles. You get, on a regular basis, you get to see transformations, not just improvements. You get to see transformations. I mean, you used to have to run a donkey and go to Damascus to see what you can see regularly in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. So, and all you have to do in those self-stuff work is share your story. Share your life. Help someone. Befriend someone. Sometimes these speakers that come and talk to you sponsor 20 or 30 or many, many people. It isn't meant for everybody to sponsor a lot of people, but it would be nice if everybody had the chance to sponsor one or two. Okay, that, to, to grab a newcomer who we know is new and doesn't know many people and just buy him a cup of coffee. And if you do that over a period of time, you'll... I was talking with one of the younger members of the group and he said, I sponsor people, but I haven't had much success. I didn't have any success with the people that I sponsored until I was over five years. And I sponsored a lot of people. Except as my sponsor pointed out, I was a success in that I maintain my sobriety. But every time they had a young person, they gave them to me. Or not every time, but often they gave them to me. And a lot of the people I worked with weren't ready or didn't want Alcoholics Anonymous. I was just this charger on my horse going everywhere, you know, <coughs> doing that. So service is, there are two, there are two ways to become enlightened. Two major paths. One is the monastic path, and the other is the service path, the Mother Teresa path. Okay? And I'm not suggesting that we all have the capability to become Sister Teresa, but I'm telling you something. If you watch people who, who do service, it has a way of, of, of you gathering wisdom and strength over a period of time in your life. There is nothing better as Dr. Bob talked about, in love and service. It is really when you want to talk about the principles that will put us in, in good stead in our practice is love and service. So we practice these principles in all our affairs. Uh, one of the great things I think you should be able to ask, it is, to be a great AA member, to be a good AA member is not just to attend meetings and to sponsor people and to give talks. To be a great AA member is to be a better spouse, to be a better boyfriend or girlfriend, to be a better worker, to be a better neighbor, to be a better employee. That you should be able to go to your parents or to the people that are close to you and ask the question, is Mary a better person today because of her involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous? You know, that's the mark of whether or not we practice the principles in all our affairs and whether or not we're a good member of AA. It isn't just what we do in AA. It is what we do in the world. The purpose of our recovery is to restore us to life, not just to make AA our life, not to build a tent over AA and have it be our life. So it has been, uh, before we say goodbye, come on up here. Do you have anything you want to say on No, I'm just sort of overwhelmed here. I, I don't have anything to add. I... Honestly, I'm in total agreement. Uh, sort of profound right now. Yeah. I wish you could have seen us when we were 24 and 22 years old. Oh. Uh, yesterday for me. 
Uh, she came in Al-Anon, and when you talked to the women that were in that group, they said they had everything they could do not to tell her to run away from me. They were baffled by the fact and that... And they'd say, you know he's an alcoholic and you're going to marry him? <laughs> yes. You know, and we were in love, you know. And I had just joined AA and we were engaged. And these women just couldn't... These women were had drinking alcoholics, and they just thought, why would you ever, if you had a chance to get out, get out now, you know, <laughs> get out now. Uh, so maybe when we stand here, we sound like, oh, we know a lot. We didn't know anything. Now, we had a good head start. I, I, the story of my life is that I was born on third base and, and have been congratulating myself for hitting the triple. I had great parents, and I had a great education, and I've been healthy. That's a pretty good head start. Okay? But we didn't know anything about being married, anything about kids. I was a catastrophe about work, and we built our life in the program. And I'll tell you, it is just, it's been a great ride. It, it, it is just, if you have God in the middle of your marriage, in that relationship, uh, you can take on the world. A good relationship is a shit-eating machine. Whatever. Well, that's that's. I, I don't mean I don't mean to be crude, but I'm telling you that a good relationship will digest anything you throw at it. It is just. It's not a question about whether our relationship is going to dissolve because something comes our way that is difficult. Our relationship will take that on, and we'll be okay. Because we're not alone, and we have a program, and we're intact, you know, and we practice the principles imperfectly in most of our affairs. <laughs> and uh, I can't tell you, <coughs> there is something about going to another country. About four weeks ago, I was in New York giving a talk, and I had lunch at the General Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous with Greg Muth, who who is the manager of the General Service Office and who I understand is going to be in Iceland sometime in the near future. So he is the, he is the head employee of Alcoholics Anonymous, the head servant of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's quite a man. He's a, he's a great guy and he's been sober about 30 years. And the stories that he tells about AA in China and in India and in Russia and the different places around the world and the troubles that they are having and the successes that they are having, I mean, I just start <coughs> crying about halfway through the meal. So when you go someplace, when I go I have so much available to me in my country and in my city. But when I come here and I see what you're doing and what you've done in the last seven or eight years, it, it is overwhelming to me how positive and good what you are doing is. It is, it is just <coughs> terrific. So thank you for the opportunity to celebrate that with you this weekend. You've been, it's just been wonderful. Just keep having fun. <laughs> Thank you.
help someone, befriend someone. Sometimes these speakers that come and talk to you sponsor 20 or 30 or many, many people. It isn't meant for everybody to sponsor a lot of people, but it would be nice if everybody had the chance to sponsor one or two. Okay? That, to, to grab a newcomer who we know is new and doesn't know many people and just buy him a cup of coffee. And if you do that over a period of time, you'll... I was talking with one of the younger members of the group and he said, I sponsor people, but I haven't had much success. I didn't have any success with the people that I sponsored until I was over five years. And I sponsored a lot of people. Except as my sponsor pointed out, I was a success in that I maintained my sobriety. But every time they had a young person, they gave them to me. Or not every time, but often they gave them to me. And a lot of the people I worked with weren't ready or didn't want Alcoholics Anonymous. I was just this charger on my horse going everywhere, you know, <coughs> doing that. So service is... There are two there are two ways to become enlightened, two, two major paths. One is the monastic path, and the other is the service path, the Mother Teresa path. Okay? And I'm not suggesting that we all have the capability to become Sister Teresa, but I'm telling you something. If you watch people who, who do service, it has a way of, of, of you gathering wisdom and strength over a period of time in your life. There is nothing better, as Dr. Bob talked about, than love and service. It is really when you want to talk about the principles that will put us in, in good stead in our practice is love and service. So we practice these principles in all our affairs. Uh, one of the great things I think you should be able to ask, it is, to be a great AA member, to be a good AA member is not just to attend meetings and to sponsor people and to give talks. To be a great AA member is to be a better spouse, to be a better boyfriend or girlfriend, to be a better worker, to be a better neighbor, to be a better employee. That you should be able to go to your parents or to the people that are close to you and ask the question, is Mary a better person today because of her involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous? You know, that's the mark of whether or not we practice the principles in all our affairs and whether or not we're a good member of AA. It isn't just what we do in AA. It is what we do in the world. The purpose of our recovery is to restore us to life, not just to make AA our life, not to build a tent over AA, and have it be our life. So it has been, uh, before we say goodbye, come on up here. Do you have anything you want to say on? No, I'm just sort of overwhelmed here. I, I don't have anything to add. I Honestly, I'm in total agreement. Uh, sort of profound right now. Yeah. I wish you could have seen us when we were 24 and 22 years old. Okay. Uh, yesterday for me. <laughs> uh, she came in Al-Anon, and when you talked to the women that were in that group, they said they had everything they could do not to tell her to run away from me. They were baffled by the fact and that... And they'd she, say, you know he's an alcoholic and you're going to marry him? <laughs> yes. And we were in love, you know. And I had just joined AA and we were engaged. And these women just couldn't... These women were had drinking alcoholics, and they just thought, why would you ever, if you had a chance to get out, get out now, you know, get out now. Uh, 
So maybe when we stand here, we sound like, oh, we know a lot. We didn't know anything. Now, we had a good head start. I, I, the story of my life is that I was born on third base and, and have been congratulating myself for hitting a triple. Okay, I had great parents, and I had a great education, and I've been healthy. That's a pretty good head start. Okay? But we didn't know anything about being married, anything about kids. I was a catastrophe about work. And we built our life in the program. And I'll tell you, it is just, it's been a great ride. It, it, it is just, if you have God in the middle of your marriage, in that relationship, uh, you can take on the world. A good relationship is a shit-eating machine. Whatever. Well, that's that's. I, I don't mean I don't mean to be crude, but I'm telling you that a good relationship will digest anything you throw at it. It is just. It's not a question about whether our relationship is going to dissolve because something comes our way that is difficult. Our relationship will take that on, and we'll be okay because we're not alone, and we have a program, and we're intact, you know. And we practice the principles imperfectly in most of our affairs. <laughs> and uh, I can't tell you, <clears throat> there is something about going to another country. About four weeks ago, I was in New York giving a talk, and I had lunch at the General Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous with Greg Muth, who who is the manager of the General Service Office and who I understand is going to be in Iceland sometime in the near future. So he is the, he is the head employee of Alcoholics Anonymous, the head servant of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's quite a man. He's a, he's a great guy and he's been sober about 30 years. And the stories that he tells about AA in China and in India and in Russia and the different places around the world and the troubles that they are having and the successes that they are having, I mean, I just start <coughs> crying about halfway through the meal. So when you go someplace, when I go, I have so much available to me in my country and in my city. But when I come here and I see what you're doing and what you've done in the last seven or eight years, it, it is overwhelming to me how positive and good what you are doing is. It is, it is just <coughs> terrific. So thank you for the opportunity to celebrate that with you this weekend. You've been, it's just been wonderful. Just keep having fun. <laughs>